Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. One thing I love about our city here in Portland, Oregon, it's the city I grew up in. I grew up right here in Southeast, spent most of my life in Southeast Portland. One thing I love about our city is we are open-minded. We are open to anything and to everything. We are open to anything and to everything. We are here for the freaks, for the weirdos, for the creatives. We'll take the anarchists. We'll take anybody. Come on into Portland. Some of you haven't lived here your whole life. You just lived here for a little bit. And you love Portland. And you are, you're like, I love it here. I feel so at home here. And you don't know why. It's because you're weird. Like, you... You were from Kansas and they didn't like you there. And you came here and we're like, we love you. We're here for you. And the reason you feel at home in Portland is because you're a little weird. And that's okay. We all are. We all are. We love to be open-minded. And I was thinking about this because the Christmas story has a a reading in the Christmas story about those that are open-minded. As the story that Pastor Cheryl read, the story of the Magi. These are open-minded seekers looking for God's son in Matthew chapter two. The Magi is a story that it seems at first glance is a, is a story of like spiritually open seekers reading signs in the sky, seeing a star, and then going to bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus. It seems to me very Portland. These open spiritual seekers bring craft artisan goods over to God's son. It seems it's a Portland story. It's the story that gives us probably my least favorite Christmas song, We Three Kings. I'm sorry if this is a divisive comment, but that song, is scripturally inaccurate. And as a theologian, I'd like to dismiss that song from your repertoire. First of all, there were not three of them, okay? Nowhere in the story does it say there were three magi. In fact, it was such a long journey, they were probably coming from modern-day Iran, that probably that journey into Bethlehem, which is modern-day like Israel-Palestine, where there currently is dark war at, at, at present day, that journey would have taken too long for three people. That was probably a large company of magi that came. Secondly, they were not kings. They are not, there's nowhere in the story is there anything about royalty. Magi, this is from the Greek word magos uh, that, that, that we get it from. It was, this was a word that was applied to all kinds of magicians and astrologers. It was kind of a catch-all term for those that were seeking the traditions and the trainings of Persian priests, modern-day Iran, like over in, in, in the Middle East. So they weren't, um, you know, kings. There weren't three of them. They weren't of Orient. Uh, You know, tell me you wrote a uh, song in 1863 without telling me you wrote a song in 1863. Yikes. These are Persians. And they were committed to um, astronomy and to astrology. Those two things have been separated in our day today. Astronomy is the laws of the movements of the stars. Astrology is the meaning of the stars and the movements of the stars. Back in the day, though, those two things were were fused together. And the Magi practiced this tradition that uh, combined those two things to look at uh, astrological phenomenon. And they'd look at this and see, like, what is this meaning? And the Magi believed the universe, 
or God brought them to Judea, to the region of Jerusalem, and they go to the capital city and they're inquiring about a new king they believe they've been born, taking their own tradition, their own spiritual seeking, and they go into Judea and they might as well go to the capital city because they feel like if a king is born, it's gonna be in the capital city and it's going to probably be known by the king of the capital city, which was King Herod. King Herod was not a person of, the, of Israel. He was not Jewish. Um, he was a Roman occupying political leader. And they go to the local king and they ask him. And if you heard Cheryl read that story, you heard Herod's reaction, Matthew 2, chapter 3. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem was with him disturbed. They were not thinking that this was good news. They were disturbed about this because this could have been a political threat. It's interesting how seeking spiritually, sometimes the answers we come to, uh, we, we might be disturbed by them. We might be disturbed by the answers that we receive from our spiritual seeking. Herod is concerned and he calls in the religious professionals. He himself is not Jewish. He brings in the Jewish scholars, the theologians, and they quote the Old Testament for him. This is in Matthew chapter two, verse six. And they quote Micah. This is a quote from Micah 5, 2, that the leader is not going to be born in Jerusalem in the capital city. It's going to be in the suburbs. They're going to go out into the, 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 the outer regions of the, of the region of Judea and go to Bethlehem. And they point through this passage of scripture, these scholars, they say, it's, it's actually not going to be here. It's going to be somewhere else. And they move the Magi over to Bethlehem. And it's this openness that the Magi had that lead them, though, to hear this scripture reference. And again, these are Persian priests. These are not people of Israel. These are not people steeped in the story of Exodus. These are not people saturated in the Levitical law. These are not people of this tradition. But this open-mindedness leads them to hear this passage from the Jewish tradition, the Jewish prophetic tradition, Micah 5.2, and they hear that word And then they go, and that's where that famous Christmas scene happens where they're giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're bowing down to this baby in a manger in the suburbs of Jerusalem while the king, the political king Herod, is sitting in his throne room with nobody around. They don't bow to King Herod. They don't give their treasures to King Herod. They go because of this scripture to this little stable. And then it says this in Matthew 2, 12, as they're leaving the stable, this is being warned in a dream. Now in Middle Eastern culture, dreams take heavy significance. In Western secular culture, there are garbage and Freudian, Freudian garbage basically, right? But in, in Middle Eastern culture, especially in ancient, ancient Near East, dreams were of massive significance. And in a dream, they're warned to never go back to Herod and departed on their own way. Verses later, Herod is going to be so threatened by the baby born, he's going to order an issue that all the children um, are going to be receiving violence uh, through his action. And they get this dream that they go, Herod is not to be messed with. Don't go back to him. How did this happen? How did such open minds become so singularly devoted? You see, near the start of the story, we're convinced the Magi's identity as religious seekers. They're spiritual people, to be sure. They travel months to check in on this child. 
It's kind of spiritual royalty that they're interested in. But then they allow their open mind to be led to a specific place, a specific person to give singular worship to this one child in Bethlehem. What happened to that open mind is my question. One way to read this story is super simple. Spiritually open-minded people seek God through a star and they find him in a manger and they worship him and that's it. But I'm actually convinced there's something else going on in this story. Who has more activity in this story? Are the Magi really doing as much as we think they are? Reading signs in the sky and going on the journey? Yes, they did something, but someone else was the more active agent in this story. If you notice in Matthew 2, if you were reading it very carefully, the star that they reference, they say the star is of the king of the Jews and they, they call the star his star. That someone sent that star. That that star is actually the created object that it is, has a creator. That the astrological phenomenon has a maker, has an author behind it. They call it his star. A star in the east rises. Then the star leads them to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they hear a scripture from outside of their tradition, but they hear a scripture from the God of Israel. And that scripture leads them to Bethlehem when they see the star again above Bethlehem. And then they get a dream. We don't know who the dream is from, but they're being warned in a dream to avoid violence. It seems like it might be from God. Who's doing more activity in this story? At first glance, it seems like this is the story of the activity of the Magi. But friends, if you think about a star over the east, a scripture being read, a star returning to Jerusalem, and then a dream being warned, I think... This isn't a story about the Magi seeking God. This is the story about God seeking the Magi. This isn't a story about Magi going to great lengths to find God. This is the story about a God going to great lengths to find these Magi. A star, a verse, another star, a dream. God met them and they told them this. You don't gotta look anymore. God has come to you. You don't have to come to God. Look no further. The story of Christmas is not a story for spiritual seekers and spiritual enlightened people, spiritually enlightened people. The story of Christmas is a story of spiritual failures. It's for those of us that have run out of energy seeking the next right thing meaning-making in the 21st century of looking for the next relationship, the next podcast, the next mindfulness technique, the next therapist, the next hobby, the next political win, the next season of our lives, the new me, the next thing and expecting different things. If you are done looking for God and you're done looking for meaning and you're done looking for answers and you're exhausted, tired, and weary, great news, you can stop. Today, I wanna to give you the surprising permission to give up your search for God because God has searched for you already. That God has actually come to us already. And could it be that the same open-mindedness from, from the Magi that led them to where they are today, or that led them to the, to the stable in Bethlehem, that same kind of open-mindedness could lead us to God. Between you and the living God of the universe, guess who will always be the more active agent in your relationship? 
Many Christians obsess and stress over their walk with God, quote unquote, their pursuit of God, the gospel, the event of the coming of Jesus Christ into our world, this good news, it thunders against our search for God and tells us an almost unfathomable concept. God seeks you more than you seek him. God looks after you more than you look after him. And now we can ask the question in our everyday life, not where am I at with God, but where is God at with me? (laughs) Not asking how can I seek God, but how is God seeking me today? Not how am I going to pursue God today? That kind of evangelical anxiety that exists in Protestant Western cultures. How can I pursue God? Now, how is God pursuing you? What is God doing in your life? What stars are you seeing in the sky? What scriptures are you hearing in your ear? What, what things are leading you to Bethlehem? Who's the more active agent in your relationship with God? It will always be God. Our Western culture demands all of us to make meaning from an individual effort. It's exhausting. We're instructed to craft our own identities, find our inner self that would tell, and then tell the world who we are and how we exist. And we're supposed to perform this all the time, tell people who we are. It's an exhausting pursuit. Only this God, Jesus Christ, is the God who comes after us. The incarnation is a separate category of any philosophy and theology that God would come in flesh and live among people and do that in a miraculous way through the virgin birth and the prophecies of Israel, God is not at a distance waiting to be found. He already came to show us he's finding us. Christmas says, as humans, we are not really here primarily to search for God, like find our way up the mountain the way you might have heard it, God on the mountain, and we find different pathways up to that God. As humans, that's not our primary meaning. The primary meaning to be human is not to walk up the mountain to find God, but to realize that God from the mountain descended to find us. That actually the entire meaning of Christmas is to find yourself to be sought after, to be worthy to be found, to be worthy like the Magi, to see a star in the sky, to lead them all the way to a stable in Bethlehem. Likewise, God is doing that with us. Most of us are Christians, not because we thought it was a great idea, but because God thundered into our existence, because God rattled our cage, because we suffered greatly, or something happened to us, or we gave up the search for God because we realized God was already here. God had found us. This is through all the great conversion stories from 20th century Britain to 4th century Africa. People who know God know God because God found them. And the invitation for you in Christmas is to realize that God has found you. 20th century Britain, 1955. C.S. Lewis had already been well into the production of his Chronicles of Narnia series. He had converted to Christianity. He was writing out of a Christian worldview, but he decided to write his story. He decided to write his conversion story. And in 1955, he released Surprised by Hope, which is uh, his, his, his mem- memoir, basically, and his memoir of his conversion. But his entire book, if you read the whole book, it's really about his dismissal of Christianity. For the whole book, he spends an exhausting amount talking about his massive reservations, even his disgust for Christianity. As a member of the English uh, elite, he was a part of the intellectual elite, he taught at Cambridge and, and, uh, and Oxford. 
He had considered himself the most open-minded person, one of the most well-read people in the Western world he probably was. At the end of his book, he calls himself the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Near the end of his book, he's got this great line where he says, he was reading, he was reading obsessively to try to keep himself open. He said, there came a point where all of the books started coming after me. All the books that he read started coming after him and they started to turn against him. And his final chapter is called Checkmate. Here's the line. All over the board, my pieces were in the most disadvantaged positions. Soon I could no longer cherish even the illusion that the initiative lay with me. My adversary, that's who he calls God through his whole memoir, my adversary, began to make his final moves. I had always wanted, this is a very Western thing, isn't it? Above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted, mad wish, to call my soul my own. I had been far more anxious to avoid suffering than to achieve delight. I had always aimed at limited liabilities. Wow, that is the American dream. <laughs> you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen where he lived, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms as mine. His compulsion, God's compulsion, is our liberation. Lewis's story reminds us that for as much as we might work against God, God will always outwork us. What good news. Travel then from 20th century Britain to 4th century Africa in Morocco, North Africa. In the middle of the 4th century, there's St. Augustine, who we often assume and, and think about in the Western tradition, and rightly so. He's a Western theologian because he traveled to Milan, Italy, but he was an African. In Egypt and Morocco, that's where he was born. And he was born there to a Christian convert, a woman, his mother, who tried to convert Augustine his whole life. In fact, she came uh, one, for a season of her life, she came every day to her pastor. This is in the year, this is in the year like 320 in North Africa. She would go every single day to her pastor and beg him through tears to convert her son because he was so obstinate to Christianity. He was so against the whole Christian thing. And he tells her, Ambrose, this bishop in, in, in Africa, tells, tells uh, Augustine's mother, he says, this child will be converted one day because he's a child of tears, a child of tears. And St. Augustine, one of his famous books is called The Confessions, where he writes basically his whole conversion story. And this is one of the famous lines from The Confessions, one of his greatest masterpieces, one of the most important books in my life. He writes this, Late have I loved you. He's talking to God. The whole book is his, his confession to God. Late have I loved you. Beauty so ancient, so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within me, and I was outside. And out there I sought you, and I misshapen, chased after the beautiful shapes you had made. You were with me, but I was not with you. Those things which wouldn't exist unless they existed in you, they held me back far from you, but you called and you shouted out and shattered my deafness. You flashed, you blazed, and my blindness fled, and I burst into flames with desire for your peace.
If I had one word to describe our overall cultural attitude to Christianity, it would be reluctance. For good reason. Reluctance because of the ways the church has hurt the world and society, especially in the West. Reluctance because the uncertainty of Christianity's remarkable claims, virgin birth, resurrection, etc. Reluctance because of the demands Jesus makes upon our life when we actually read what he has to say. It's fair to be hesitant, but I don't think it's fair to be closed. After all, God has sought after you more than you will ever seek after him, and he's seeking after you more than you will ever ignore him. Obstinance is no match for God's mercy. Beware of closing all the doors. There is no more concerning spiritual and emotional condition than that of a hard heart. Because this is what the Magi teach me. It's true, you can have an open mind, but you can also have a hard heart, a calloused heart. And the Magi, the difference between the Magi and, and, and King Herod was not their mind, it was their heart. That the softness of the hearts of the Magi led them to the stable. And my ask of us today is on Christmas Eve, all of us would not really consider the full-throated yes to Jesus the way that many evangelical preachers might do this Christmas. Instead, I want us to take the step before that step to be willing to be surprised that the Christian gospel is what it says it is, which is the revelation of our creator that he has come to us, that he has visited us. Could we actually be open in our search for meeting that the longing for identity that we feel can actually be found in the most surprising place, in the child Jesus? The Magi began looking at the stars, open to all possibilities, they concluded with one. One solitary full commitment, the child in the manger got all the treasures. They began open to everything. They end worshiping one, Jesus. They never worship or return to King Herod because they had already found the real king. They did not lose their ability to be surprised that Jesus was their final place of rest. What do we gain with the fixed certainty that Christianity has no truth with it? And what do we lose by at least exploring its validity? God's actions of grace are far greater than our reluctance. And I know this to be true because that Jesus that was born in the manger in Matthew 2 is the same Jesus that would be led to be falsely accused as a criminal on a cross. He is the one, God is the one, who comes into our world as an innocent baby and dies like he never was. He did not rebuke our reluctance or shame our obstinance. He actually ends up bearing it. He did not hold our selfishness against us. He took it upon himself. This great act of love, when contemplated fully, softens the most calloused heart and breaks through the deafness the way that St. Augustine says it did. This is the kind of king who, unlike our political kings, does not demand our life, but lays it down in our place. In other words, he's nothing like any of our rulers or sages today. Jesus is the kind of king we could never expect and certainly never find on our own. No wonder he had to find us. We could never make him up. This is the story and the invitation to open the door and to consider that this is the story that all human beings have been waiting for. I want you to stand with me and pray now as we continue in worship. 
And as we close our service, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for the gift that is Jesus. Father, I pray for those of us that are racked with grief and anxiety and guilt that we haven't done a lot in our relationship with you. Would you give us the grace today that it's not about what we do for you. God, is about what you have done for us. Let us receive your grace afresh today, we pray. And Father, for those of us that maybe felt we've closed the door, God, would you grant us the grace to crack it open a little bit, just to open our minds and soften our hearts today. And Father, as we sing, would you work in us um, so that we might be able to receive more of your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.